This is episode number 43 with concussion researcher and expert Dr. Stephen Brolio. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high performance life. We talk with experts in the categories of mindset, psychology, sports, and more to give you the elements on how to be your best self. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for coming back every single week and checking out all of the great information from all of our guests. I'm pretty excited that it is almost spring and the thaw is happening. The trails are going to be opening up soon. And I just really love getting out of winter time. It's not my favorite season, and I just am always biding my time waiting for the spring thaw. In today's show, I had the opportunity to speak with a concussion expert with all of the latest cutting edge research. As someone who has had a few concussions myself, if you guys have been following me over the years, you've seen it. Learning about CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, ugh, easy for me to say, a few years ago was pretty frightening, and I wondered how concussions and the after effects of those concussions would impact my life. My last concussion was in 2016, just days before defending my world championship title at the 24-hour Worlds in Rotorua, New Zealand. I didn't feel that bad, but I had some definite symptoms of concussion, and fortunately one of my friends there was... I think she's an occupational therapist and she kept giving me all of these questions that helped me identify that maybe I shouldn't be out there racing. It was tough though because it was the world championship. I was defending my title and it was difficult but probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life to skip the race because racing your mountain bike for 24 hours straight even with a mild concussion is not the best idea. And then the next year, my husband was the one who had a concussion. He had one concussion and felt totally fine after just about a week and was back to regular activity and intensity very quickly. And we were doing the single track six and it was three weeks after the first concussion. He was totally symptom free, so he decided to do the race and he was already signed up, so might as well do it. He had another crash, an unfortunate crash in the race. And it's interesting because he hardly ever crashes and had another concussion. So he had two concussions that were separated only by a few weeks. He also had separated his shoulder and was in pretty bad shape. And it took him several months to recover from the second concussion. I've been wanting to talk to an expert in concussion research because a mild traumatic brain injury is pretty serious and it's really hard to know when we're supposed to get back to activity. We love being athletes, we love getting out there and using our bodies, and sometimes it's really hard to have the best judgment on what you're supposed to do. Plus, it seems like there's not really a lot of clear information out there and everybody thinks different things. Too many of us go back to activity too quickly or and we just decide it's not a big deal, and I've definitely been one of those people. And to be honest, just two weeks after my concussion before Worlds back in New Zealand, I did a seven-day enduro stage race. That's downhill racing, the New Zealand or trans-New Zealand enduro stage race. And I'm so lucky I didn't have any serious crashes in that race because knowing what I know now, it would have been pretty serious and it might have ended my entire season. I wanted to have my questions answered, so in this show, you'll hear about the myths of concussion in both sports like cycling and football, who to talk to if you think you might have a head injury, what helmets actually do, the signs and symptoms of a concussion, and the protocol to getting back to sport. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Brolio. His research centers on improving athlete health and safety related to concussion by focusing on injury prevention, early recognition, and management. His research also looks at the long-term effects of concussion on various aspects of motor control across the lifespan. He is also a cyclist himself, and it was really interesting to get to speak with somebody who's on the forefront of all the new things that are coming out about concussion. I was introduced to Dr. Brolio by Dr. Kristen Keim, who has also been a guest on this show. I hope that you guys find a lot of value listening to this information about concussions. It's really important, not only for you, but for your friends as well, and so that we can help support each other to make smart decisions. As someone who has had a few broken bones and concussions over my 13-year career as a cyclist, I wanted to stress that racing or pushing yourself hard while injured 
injured or concussed is not worth it. But it's hard to stop yourself. I admit that I've done a lot of stupid things, and it's a little bit embarrassing to admit them now, but I've done a lot of stupid things as an immature athlete who felt that she had something to prove. And fortunately, there was no negative consequences, but there could have been. It could have been really bad for me in some of these situations where I decided to race with broken bones or with a concussion. Brain injuries, even mild ones, are incredibly serious and it's not worth risking your most important asset just to get in another ride, even if it's a world championship. And I think that it's important that we support one another because a lot of us push each other to just say, screw it, I'm just going to keep going. And the culture around that is toxic. And I have been one of those people who have encouraged people to do that. So I take responsibility for that. And I'm trying to just raise awareness uh, about concussions and about how you shouldn't keep going if you think you might have one. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the growth of the show and it helps get the show in front of new eyes and ears. And if you guys want to contribute to the show, take a screenshot and post it up on social media. Tag me and tag the guest. That always helps a lot. And you can even send a link around to your friends. Thanks so much. And if you'd like to help contribute financially to the growth of this show, go to my Patreon page. It's in the show notes, but it's patreon.com slash the Sonya Looney show. And you can donate as little as four bucks a month. And it really does help. I'm trying to up the game with the show. I need to invest in some new equipment. And I also really want to get some high profile guests that have a lot of really interesting knowledge for you guys to listen to. So thanks so much for your support. Thanks for listening. Let's get into this week's show with Dr. Steven Brolio about concussion. Welcome, Dr. Stephen Brolio, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And you are currently surviving a blizzard in Michigan. That's right. Yeah, we were getting about uh, seven or eight inches of snow today, and then another uh, two on Saturday and two on Sunday. So that bike nationals on the other side of the state in Grand Rapids this weekend. So good luck to all those people. It's uh, ripe conditions for that race. Do you ever get out on a fat bike? Do not own a fat bike. Um, I tend to, uh, I just look at them go by slowly and dream of the days when I can go outside again when the snow's not on the ground. Yeah, I have to say, <laughs> I, I ride a fat bike here in BC a little bit in the winter, but our winter temperatures are nothing like Michigan. So anyone in the Midwest who's out riding a fat bike, I commend them. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, they're tough people. I think uh, I've got a cutoff of about uh, zero centigrade and then I don't go outside anymore. So that's about January to mid-March around here. Yeah, and like zero whenever it's humid is a totally different ball game when it's zero and dry too. Totally, yeah, a lot of different uh, types of clothing, and I got two drawers full of different gloves for every condition possible. So, cool. Well, Dr. Kristen Kime recommended you. I, I was looking for a concussion expert to come on my show, and she said that you guys were in school together, and she also said that you were a cyclist. I used to race a bit, just. Uh, amateur stuff. And uh, Kristen was at uh, Georgia. When I was at Georgia, I was getting my PhD down there. So that's nice to know that those connections are still holding. So I'll shout out to her for uh, hooking us up. Cool. And, and do you get out on your bike quite a bit? Whenever uh, it's not below yeah, zero? Yeah. <laughs> when, when the weather's good, I try to get out a bit. But uh, life, job, family responsibilities take priority now. So, But yeah, I still like getting out there and uh, riding when I can. And it's there's nothing better than a nice summer day, spring day, and uh, you know, little, little freedom, wind in the hair type of thing. So yeah, I enjoy it. Cool. Well, let's get into concussions. What initially got you interested in doing this line of research? I started as an undergraduate student doing it. So my advisor as an undergraduate was a concussion researcher. And uh, as I say it, I kind of walked into his lab one day and then never left. But it really was just a matter of, I got in there and uh, just kind of started helping out and kind of got deeper and deeper into it and did more and more. I did a, a research project as an undergraduate, went on and got my master's at the University of Pittsburgh or did a thesis and then at University of Georgia for my doctorate, then took a faculty position in 2006 at the University of Illinois and then moved to University of Michigan around 2011. But really have been doing the same thing ever since or since I started, I should say. And it's been fun. I started in late 1990s, kind of when People knew concussion existed, but it wasn't really the thing it is now. And so some days I feel like I got picked the right uh, the right injury at the right time, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so it's quite popular in the last 10 years or so. So I got lucky, I guess. 
And like, how do you actually study concussions? Like, are you taking samples of people who have had head head injuries and then doing MRIs or CAT scans? Like, what what is the process? Good question. So we've done uh, like a whole, I don't know, across the 10, 15 years that I've been doing it, we've we've approached it from different angles. So some some things we look at people acutely injured. So um, really on the, the sideline, immediately after an injury and how do they respond to different tests or what tests are the best tests to help identify that concussion to help the medical practitioner. Others, we look at how do they recover 10 days, 14 days after injury? How do they function on those clinical tests? Or we've done some um, MRI studies seeing how the brain is kind of functioning as well. And then more recently, I think, uh, as concussions become a topic of, of wide interest, where we are also curious about the long-term effects. So we look at clinical performance. We look at imaging performance on MRI. We look at blood biomarkers. We've done gait analysis, balance analysis, five, six, 10 years post-injury, all trying to understand kind of what happens to people and, and trying to predict it, who gets it, why they get it. And then obviously the next question is, how do we stop it or prevent it? So that's kind of where we're going with it. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting field, especially because there's so many different variations of what people think a concussion is. So how do you define when somebody has an actual traumatic brain injury versus a mild traumatic brain injury? And how can people know the difference? Right. Yeah, great. So there are something in the neighborhood of like 45 different definitions of concussion in the literature. So this is something where we struggle with. Really, probably the most popular definition or most widely applied is an alteration in mental status brought about by a direct or indirect force to the head. So you can imagine crashing your bike and hitting your head on the pavement or on a tree if you're a mountain biker. That would be a direct force. Or if you're in an automobile accident um, or maybe a football player, you get hit in the chest and you have this kind of whiplash motion. And then that is an indirect force to the head. The alteration in mental status can be amnesia. It can be loss of consciousness, although loss of consciousness is actually quite rare, 5 to 7% of injuries. And more often than not, we hear, I don't feel right, or a series of symptoms. Their balance may be impaired, or motor control may be impaired. Difficulty remembering words, remembering shapes, and those types of things. The way, all those tests that we give people, that just helps inform the decision. But it's really the judgment of the clinical, the, the medical practitioner that makes the diagnosis. So... Similar to attention deficit disorder, there's no blood test, there's no imaging scan, there's no x-ray, there's no nothing for concussion. You walk into the office and you say, oh, I don't concentrate well, I get distracted, and the physician says, oh, you have ADD. And with concussion, you ask the clinician asks a series of questions, remembering words and shapes and symptoms and this, that, and the other, and then they say, well, we saw you hit your head and now you have these symptoms, we think you have a concussion. And so that's really how it's done. But it does pose some challenges, both from a clinical management standpoint and from a research standpoint. Yeah, like I think that I've had the questions asked to me that it's like the return to activity protocol where they start asking you all these questions. And it's hard because if you have some sort of head injury, you're trying to answer questions, but you're also influenced. You're not completely objective about your personal state. So as both athletes and also from your end as a researcher, how do you how do you deal with that so that people can actually give real information and be able to make a true diagnosis of what we should be doing? So great question. So it's something we struggle with. I'll use symptoms as an example. So if you were to ask anybody on any given day, do you have a headache? I would say probably, I don't know, 15 to 20 percent of people would say yes. Right. So whether it's I just went to altitude or I'm dehydrated or I had a hard workout or maybe I'm hungover, you have a headache. So headache is not a great explicit indicator of concussion, but we use it. And so uh, these symptoms give us a guidance, right? Fatigue is another one, right? You're a cyclist. You just went through some hard training. You know, you're tired because you trained or are you tired because you crashed at the end and then you have this possible concussion. But we try to couple the symptoms with other tests. So there's a, one test called the balance error scoring system, which is it assesses your balance. And we look for poor really like a poor ability to do that. Um, another is called the standardized assessment of concussion or the SAC test. And that's a kind of more of a cognitive test. So remembering words, counting backwards by sevens, remembering sequences of numbers and those types of things. So those are more objective. And so poor performance on those is a little more clear cut, although not entirely perfect. It sounds like a sobriety uh, test. <laughs> a little bit. It, it acts a little bit. It is. But those things, they help inform. But, you know, there's a lot of things you can imagine you know, if you just did a race, like I watched the Cyclocross World Championships last weekend, the, I think it was the women's race, or maybe it was the U23 women's race. 
the woman from England, I think she was from England that won, she kind of collapsed at the line, right? So she didn't have a concussion. She was just fatigued from her race. So using a balance measure at that point, you know, doesn't really give you a lot. So that's where the clinical judgment comes in. Is it's really the experience of the practitioner and knowing the sport, the requirements of the sport, observing an accident, and then you can make a decision. But like a lot of times people will crash on their bike. And I mean, I've had many crashes and a lot of people listening, I'm sure have spent some time on the ground. When do you actually need to go see a clinician to see if you have a head injury? Because there's lots of times where it's like, oh, well, I, I probably have a little bit of whiplash or I might have hit my head. So how, how do you know when it's important to do that? I'll break it down into kind of there's two parts to this. So one is kind of the racing. This, this thing happens in, in racing and then this crash happens in training. So in training, it's pretty easy just to shut down for the day and then maybe go see somebody if you have a suspicion. You know, I, I don't have really good guidance for people, but I would just say, you know, if I don't feel right, you know, and not like, oh, I crashed my bike, I don't feel right. But like, uh, my helmet's scuffed up. I got a headache. Uh, the light's bothering me. I feel nauseous. I feel dizzy. You know, I don't feel right. It's probably time to go see somebody. Racing is a lot tougher because I, I was a road racer. And, you know, you the instinct, particularly in criteriums, is, you know, get up, take your free lap, and then get back in there. And concussion isn't always automatically evident. It can take 20 or 30 minutes for the signs and symptoms to evolve. So, you, you know, you take a free lap that's maybe two minutes, three minutes, and then you're back in the race and, you know, the signs and symptoms are kind of evolving while you're out there on the course again. So I would say as you become aware of these things, that's the time to like get yourself out of there and, and get evaluated. I would also argue that if you are a concussed athlete, particularly in road racing, where you have large groups of people around you, you're pretty much a danger to yourself and everybody else because you're going to have delayed reaction time. You're not going to process information, people moving around you as well. And so you need to kind of get out of that situation so you don't crash again or take other people out. Yeah. So basically, like if you're on your bike and you have a crash and you get up and keep going, which is pretty much what everybody does, like if you start noticing that you're confused or lack of balance or like how do people know 20 minutes later? Because like we were talking about earlier, you're in a race, you're tired, you might be dizzy because like you're low blood sugar. How, how do you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I just finished this race and I am, I mean, we all, we've, we've raced enough to know it's a different type of fatigue, I guess. You know, the fatigue I feel at the end of a race is physical fatigue as opposed to like maybe cognitive fatigue or just lack of awareness of things around me, right? I mean, there is, I finished a race and I'm exhausted and I had to, I collapsed off of my bike, not crashing, but collapsed off of my bike, but you come around after 15, 20 minutes with concussion, that's not going to happen. Things are going to get worse or stay the same. And so that's the point where you're like, yeah, something kind of being aware of yourself and your body and, and going to go see somebody. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things to do is to actually drop out of a race because, yeah, a friend of mine, it was a year or two ago, she was doing a 100-mile mountain bike race and she crashed and hit her head and she back up and kept going. And as the race progressed, she decided that, you know what, like, I think I might need to drop out of this race because I think I have a head injury. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I, I want to commend her for doing that. But like, a lot of people are afraid to take this seriously because, well, they think, well, what happens if I don't have a head injury? Now I'm just a quitter. So from a mental standpoint, how serious should people take it whenever they hit their head on their bike? Yeah. So I think, you know, kind of back to the, I mean, we can use this for racing and training. So crashing, concussion, and then continuing to race, we have some pretty good evidence now that says that if you continue to exercise while you have a concussion, then you're just going to make the symptoms worse and your recovery becomes longer, mm -hmm. right? So you're really just, you're digging yourself into a bigger and bigger hole. And I know as your current athlete, I, I'll classify myself as a former athlete, um, you know, that uh, you're 100% right. It is very hard to say, you know, the, the natural instinct is I don't feel good. I'm going to train more, right? <laughs> Rather than back off and take rest. So you know, I get it. But there, again, it's this kind of awareness of, you know, I have this mechanism where I crashed, hit my head. Maybe your helmet is scuffed or split. Um, you got a pretty good indication that something is going on and it's time to shut down. One race is not going to make or break your career. As a former amateur athlete that never made it, I can never say like, oh, if I had just done better in this one race, I would have gotten the pro, the world tour contract and I'd be racing next to Froome this year. You know, it just doesn't work that way when we know that. So keeping it realistic in that way. And the same thing for training. So let's say you crash on one day. Oh, I don't feel quite right at night. So I'm going to see if I sleep it off. And then you wake up the next morning and that headache is still there and the nausea is still there. Going for a ride and going 
you know, digging, you're digging that hole deeper again. So what happens is when you have a concussion, your body starts to allocate energy and resources to repairing the brain. It's the number one priority organ in the body. But when you exercise, blood flow, glucose, everything gets diverted to the muscles because that's what's needed. It just makes things worse. It just prolongs. And all you're going to do is lose more time in the end. So you're better off shutting down for a day or two or three or whatever it takes early on, as opposed to say maybe, oh, now I need two months, three months, a season off the bike. Yeah. And I, I think the hardest part is knowing when to get back to activity because like I said, it's hard to be objective. So how would you actually recommend the protocol of going back into sport? Because a lot of times you'll have a concussion, you'll feel like you're recovered, but then you don't really know if you should be exercising or not. Yeah. So I think the key here is to have a, a clinician uh, with experience in sport-related concussion. Concussion is brain injury, mild traumatic brain injury, but specific to sport concussion that can help kind of walk you through or modulate that process for you. So there are some people that they'll have an injury, uh, they'll be clinically normal in 10, 14 days. So no symptoms, normal balance, normal cognition. And then the clinician can help kind of do a, a graded step-by-step -step process um, to get you through it. Other people may take longer. They may take 28 days, 35 days to get to normal or not even get to normal, but they still have symptoms at that point. And an experienced clinician then can implement some low-level exercise that can help start to bring people back to it. But everybody, everybody is different. So I don't want to kind of give a blanket statement like at day five, you need to do this and at 10, you need to do that because it just doesn't work that way. But that's where getting a good clinician involved can really make the difference. And what kind of clinician should people see? Because like a lot of times people go to their family doc or their chiropractor and those people might not actually know much about concussions. Yeah. So there's a group of neurologists that are trained in sport concussion in the, in the U.S. Athletic trainers are really well. They're um, athletic therapists in Canada. Um, there's some neuropsychologists that are really good at this sort of work. Actually, in Canada, uh, the group in Calgary is phenomenal at this work. There's some teams in Vancouver and Toronto that do really well up there. So you kind of just need to do some online research, but um, there, there are people scattered around that are kind of experts in the area. Is it possible for you to give me just a short list so I can put them in the show notes so people have those as a resource? Sure. We can email those later on. Okay, great. Yeah, you know, I think that a big issue is that people don't take their concussion serious enough whenever they get back to activity. An example that I have is my cousin or my husband, my cousin, hopefully he's not my husband, but <laughs> <laughs> my husband had an injury. He separated or no, the first injury was he just was riding up on a log and made a mistake, crashed and hit his head and definitely had a concussion. And he came home and he was resting and doing all the right things. And he started feeling better again. And then he got back to training. He felt completely normal in his training. But we had a race coming up, a stage race called Single Track Six. So he entered the stage race about three weeks after his concussion, was riding, had a crash, clipped a pedal, separated a shoulder, hit his head again, and had like some serious symptoms for months after this, some post-concussion symptoms. So mm -hmm. in this situation, he would have been cleared by any clinician, or I think he would have been cleared to go back to activity. He felt 100% normal, but having a second concussion really close to the first one ended up to be detrimental for him. So like, how would you, what would you say about that? I feel sorry for him, to be quite honest. It sounds like he had some bad luck there, um, you know, separated <laughs> by three weeks. I would tell him to stay away from mountain bikes and go to road racing. That's what I would say. <laughs> I think the way you described it is is pretty textbook. So, you know, he had a normal clinical recovery on the first one, felt fine. I'm sure his training was back up to kind of the normal intensities kind of in, you know, week two, week three. You know, like any injury, you know, once you injure something, it never goes back to 100%. You know, his shoulder, you said he separated his shoulder. His shoulder will never go back to 100%. It's just the way the body works. And it will always be susceptible to another injury. And it just is unfortunate that he happened to crash three weeks apart when his brain kind of had a maybe had an increased vulnerability to this second injury. And we see this, you know, American football is kind of notorious because they for this sort of thing, because someone has an injury on, on a Saturday and maybe they rush them to get him back the next Saturday or even the week after that. And there's still kind of this underlying susceptibility that's there and it kind of predisposes somebody to a second injury. I'm not recommending you know, once you have one injury, you have to stay away from the bike or competition for months on end, I don't think that's prudent, you know, but it just kind of, that's some of the risks that's going to be involved if, if you're going to go back, you know, it's cycling, we move at high speeds, crashing is part of it. And, you know, just kind of have to know what you're getting into. 
Yeah. So I guess it would be on an individual basis. If you were to say to somebody like you had a concussion, you can ride, but maybe you shouldn't race for a certain period of time. Sure. And some of it is context dependent. So my daughter, if she were to crash, I mean, she's nine, but if she were to crash and have a concussion and, you know, races in three weeks, I would be like, yeah, we're going to sit this one out. And, you know, cause she's nine, it's not a big deal for you. And I don't know if your husband's professional, you know, maybe that is a national championship. So it means a little bit more, or maybe it's, I don't know, qualifier for the Olympics, you know, and, and that means more. So, you know, some adult, you, you treat adults a little bit differently than you treat kids. You can make a little more informed decision as opposed to me making the decision for my daughter. So all these things do come into play. Yeah. And in terms of susceptibility for repeated concussions, like say you someone has a concussion on year one and then two years later they have another one. And you mentioned that it's never going to be the same like it was before. How many concussions can somebody actually get? <laughs> I know this is probably like there's no answer to this, but... <laughs> I would tell you, but then I would have to retire because that would be the answer to everything. Um, <laughs> no, so we don't really know for a number of reasons. One, because no two injuries are alike, right? Mm-hmm. So an equal amount of force to you with the same amount of force to me, we're going to respond differently. Even like you being hit today with a certain amount of force and you being hit six weeks from now with the same amount of force, you're going to respond differently. So all these, these things play into it. And there's no way to say, oh, you had three and you're done and I had the same three and I'm done. It's really just how you respond to each injury. And so what we look for is between each injury, are you taking longer and longer to recover? With each injury, are, do the symptoms or the, the declines in cognition and, and motor control, do those start to get exponentially greater, right? So the, the symptoms and the, the decline are greater than what we would see with kind of what happened with the, the force applied. And then do you return to your pre-injury state? And that's probably the biggest one. If you never return to your pre-injury state, if, you're con- if you have a permanent deficit, that's probably time to say, like, uh, I think we're done. It's time to take up golf or something. <laughs> so, you know, those are the things we look for. I mean, there are cases where people have 9, 10, 11, and they're mm-hmm. fine. And then there's cases where somebody has one, and then it's, they never go back to normal. So there's a lot of variance between people within and between people, for that matter, and, and how they respond to it. And in terms of recovery, how serious should people take the, like, lay in the dark room with no inputs and... Oh, don't do it. Don't do it. No, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's bad. I was on the committee that, that wrote that statement, and we thought we were doing the right thing, and it's the bad thing. I apologize uh, for that. All those days so, I've spent in dark rooms because of you. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, right? So, so what turns out is... Um, so what we say now is do your activities of daily living, and that doesn't mean, like, go for a six-hour training ride, but that's, like, you know do housework and, you know, things around the house and send emails so long as it doesn't make symptoms worse, right? If it starts to feel worse, then it's time to shut down and do something else. Mm-hmm. What happens when you put somebody in a dark room and strict bed rest is, I mean, obviously from a, an athlete perspective, there's like the detraining component of it. But then you start to kind of ruminate on these symptoms. And you're like, oh, is my headache getting better or worse? And is my <laughs> nausea better or worse? And you just focus so internally that it becomes a psychological injury and not a physical injury. Mm-hmm. So... And there's really some good, we're starting to see evidence. I couldn't recommend it quite yet, but we're starting to see evidence where even some really light exercise starting maybe 48 or 72 hours after injury may have some benefit. And by light exercise, I don't mean, you know, 120 watts outside for an hour. It's more like go for a walk, right? You know, walk around the block. It's that type of stuff, like really light exercise. You know, I think we've all had some sort of I don't know, knee injury or ankle injury or whatever. And, you know, just sometimes like just moving it a little bit helps. And so the idea is there. So again, like I can't quite say the evidence is there to support it, but that's what we're starting to think. But definitely this whole idea, like don't look at a computer screen, don't read a book. Definitely like you can do those things. But again, it's, it's about being self-aware. So if, I don't know if you're playing um, Fruit Ninja and, you know, your headache starts getting worse or your eyes start bothering you from looking at that screen, it's time to turn it off and, and do something else. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard some things about when you get back into activity, <clears throat> keep your heart rate really low. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want to go. So let's say you just have a normal um, recovery and it's, you know, 10 days or 14 days. And then you're starting this kind of progression back into cycling. You don't, you know, the first day out, you're not going to go two by 20 a threshold. You don't want to do that. You really want to do start off with kind of a, a nice e-ride, you know, maybe an, a half hour, an hour, keeping close to home because if symptoms come back, you want to be able to get back to the house fast. But, you know, really low, just kind of start to move the legs a little bit 
and then progressing with more and more intensity as you go. The other thing is I would say is you don't want to, and more and more intensity over days, not over the same day. The other thing is you kind of, you may want to ride with a person in case something happens, but you don't want to do a big group ride right, right away for the, for the reasons I said earlier. You, know, you may have some impaired reaction time and you don't want to put other people at risk. The medicine of cycling group, which they have some online, they actually have some guidance on how to progress back into sport specific to cycling. So doing some time on the trainer and then getting outside and then doing kind of increasing intensity over days and then kind of getting into uh, group rides and then maybe racing at the end. And how do you spell that? Me- medicine? Medicine. Medicine. Oh, medicine cycling yeah. group. Okay. Yeah. Great. Medicine of cycling. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. then another question I have is I've heard that you can take omega threes and that's supposed to help with your brain health when you're recovering. Is that true? Yeah, that was something we were looking into as a field, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years ago. I don't think the literature or the, the science ever really kind of proved it one way or the other. I don't think it would hurt. I'm just not guaranteeing it will help. That would be the only thing I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you were mentioning earlier about your daughter and about adults versus children, but I know that there's a lot of literature about men versus women who have had concussions and the differences. Can you talk about that a little bit? Historically, we would say women report higher rates of concussion when we look at comparable sports, soccer, basketball, baseball, softball, we see higher rates of concussion amongst women. We don't have a strong sense of why. There's a couple of different theories. Some people say that fluctuations in the hormonal cycle within women may make them more susceptible at certain periods of time. Women definitely have a smaller neck mass, neck strength relative to head mass compared to men. So when you crash, the male can stabilize the head better than a female. Probably, in my opinion, what I think happens the most is that women are more likely to report their injury to somebody as opposed <laughs> yeah. to men. Yep. Women are, are, you know, they're just more willing to talk about that sort of stuff. Women are more concerned about long-term health than men are, particularly, you know, teenage, young, adult males tend to hide a lot of things physically, emotionally, and then women will tend to talk about it. So I'm not convinced that men don't have the same number of concussions. I just think we'd probably hear about them more with women, which is a good thing. The other thing that you hear is that women have longer recovery periods than men. We actually have some data that we are just looking at within the last month or so where we don't think that's, that may not be true, where the recovery period may actually be the same for males and females, just for the average concussion. You know, there's certainly going to be people that recover really quickly and some that take longer than others, but for the most part, it looks like they recover about the same or maybe within a day. But when you're talking plus or minus a day, that's basically the same. But historically, you'll hear that women will take longer to recover than men, but I'm not so sure that's true anymore. It seems like that in the past, when a man would get hurt, it'd be like, well, stop being such a wuss and get up and keep going. And that's probably where that culture of not reporting injuries came from. But it seems like things are getting better in terms of it being socially acceptable for men to show vulnerability. So do you think you guys will have to redo some of those studies later to account for the changes in our sociology? Yes, I think it's the cultural shift that is occurring around men. I think that's part of it. And then I think there's even a more specific cultural shift around concussion, where it is becoming more and more acceptable to disclose if you have a symptom and, and report. So I think the when we look at some epidemiological data, when we look at incidences and rates across different sports, I think those numbers are going to shift. I think you're right. There's a really good group out of um, Indianapolis um, called Dataless, and they track concussion rates in college sports in the United States. And so, and they've been doing it for decades. They'll be able to show um, with time, they'll be able to show if the numbers are changing at all. Are there differences in concussions, whether it is the direct impact or the indirect impact? Like, can you have the exact same type of symptoms from both? Yeah, you can. 100%, they can be the same. We used to call them simple and complex. We used to call them mild concussions and regular concussions, but now it's just concussion, which I like. You know, we don't call it a severe cold and a regular cold. It's just a cold, right? Now, keep in mind, too, that concussion, we classify it as a mild traumatic brain injury, and that that occurs along the spectrum of all brain injuries. So mild traumatic brain injury, if you were to put somebody in a scanner, their brain would look totally normal. Normal. As you get into the moderate and severe, that's when we start talking about brain bleeds and skull fractures and things that you can pick up on a scanner. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the issues with concussion is you can have this injury, I can take you to the hospital, I can give you an x-ray or a CT scan or an MRI, but everything goes up as normal. So again, this is where the, the clinician's interpretation of the signs and symptoms 
is really where the diagnosis comes from. Yeah. And do you think that, or maybe, you know, does, is anybody actually working on some sort of scanner to help identify if there's been a mild traumatic brain injury? Yeah, people are working on imaging techniques. So MRI techniques are probably are one method. There's a, a technique called PET, positron elect. I don't remember what it calls. It's PET. Um, <laughs> there you go. I'm glad you know. I'm a former um, nerd. Yeah, most people don't know. Right? I did my master's in biomedical instrumentation. <laughs> we might be hiring this fall. So, um, so, and then magnetic resonance spectroscopy. People are looking at EEG techniques. And there's people that are looking at mirrors. So there's a lot of different people are looking at a lot of different things as a possible diagnostics, biomarkers, um, whether it's from blood or saliva. People are looking at all these sorts of things because they know that if we can come up with this gold standard diagnosis, then that will really want to change clinical management. But it really is going to change the research field because there won't be this ambiguity about did they have one or not when we mm-hmm. put them into a study. Yeah, I think that clearing up that ambiguity would be hugely helpful in so many ways because especially athletes are like, "Ah, I just want to get back to my activity and they don't take it seriously enough. But I've noticed that with one of my concussions, I think I've had two or three potentially. And my husband's concussions, one of his, it was that there was an issue with the spine. So I went to see a chiropractor and he had a similar thing. He went to see a chiropractor and it was the C1 vertebrae was out. And after that C1 vertebrae started getting treatment, the concussion symptoms very quickly started dissipating. So does that mean that they didn't actually have a concussion and it was actually a neck injury? And how do you tell the difference? Yeah. So you could have had both, right? So you have this blow to the head and, you know, obviously the neck is connected to the head. So you may have had a brain injury, the concussion, but simultaneously had this C1 displacement, or I'm not exactly sure what was going on with you, but you know, so those two things could have happened simultaneously. So one thing we look for is if your symptoms start to go beyond a month, you know, what other things might be going on, or you're approaching a month and symptoms aren't getting any better. They're not following this kind of normal recovery that we would expect. And that's a case where you can certainly have a headache that originates from the neck, a cervicogenic headache. So what happens, kind of in short, what happens is the the vertebrae is not where it should be. It's rotated in a, a little bit that throws the muscle tension off. The muscles in the neck project up into the back of the head, and then that causes the headache. So this is where chiropractors are good. They can do the adjustment, and then it gets the muscle tension. The, the vertebrae goes back into alignment. The muscle tension rebalances, and then in theory, the headache should go away. It's not everybody has this problem, but there are some people that do. And so in those cases, that's when it's beneficial. You know, I think chiropractors have to place. I think using a chiropractor two days, three days post-injury is probably not in the best interest of most people. But if you start to have these prolonged symptoms that are going out or you're not recovering at an expected rate, then it, it might be worth looking at. Is it dangerous for somebody to go get a chiropractic adjustment a couple of days after a, like a, a perceived head injury? I'm just not sure. It's, I don't know about dangerous. I'm not a physician, so I'm not sure I want to go there. I'm a researcher. I just don't know if it would be in your best interest at that point. That's all. Mm-hmm. It may not be nece- it may not be medically necessary. So kind of, you know, why waste the money, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, it's been interesting to watch helmet technology change over the years and people think, well, I'm wearing a helmet, so I'm, I'm fine. And like a lot of in mountain biking, there's people starting to wear more full face helmets in certain situations because the technology is changing such that you can get lighter weight, full face helmets that aren't as, uh, as annoying to wear, but what should people look for in a helmet whenever they're shopping for a helmet? Yeah, so helmets, so keep in mind, helmets are designed to prevent skull fracture and moderate severe injuries. Mm. That's really what they're designed for. They weren't designed for concussion because nobody really worried about concussion. So kind of the foam helmets, I mean, I started racing, it was like the hairnet had just disappeared. Like, you know, we just went, (laughs) the hard shell helmet was like the newest thing on the market, the Bell V1 Pro, if you remember those. So, you know, those things explode on contact with the ground because they're trying to absorb massive amounts of forces. You know, they're single-use types of things. It is just now, I should say just now, in the last, let's say, five to ten years, people have started to worry about kind of concussion mitigation and helmets, primarily in football, a little bit. We're starting to move into hockey and lacrosse a little bit with trying to those technologies. So softer materials or more compliant materials to try to absorb the forces that are associated with it. I would tell people that if they're going to buy a helmet, make sure you can flip it over and on the inside, it should have a label that says it has passed testing. And I can't remember what all, there's a couple of different standards. There's like U.S. standards. Uh, I don't know if Canada follows the U.S. standards or not. Europe has their own standards. But I would say if you buy from any major manufacturer, 
Bell, Giro, Laser. I'm endorsing none of these. I have no affiliate. Yeah, right. Like I have no major, you know, but if you buy from any of the major companies, then you'll be fine. And the other thing to keep in mind is as you spend more money, your helmet is not necessarily more protective, right? So really, if you buy the, like the $25 helmet I buy my daughter has the same brain protection ability as the whatever specialized helmet I bought last fall was. Now, what I'm paying for as a racer is a lot of ventilation and weight, but the helmets are designed to meet a certain standard. And then once it meets the standard, it passes. And then that's it. Like there's no real motivation to make more money doesn't necessarily mean you pass the standard by any more or any less. So just kind of keep in mind. I mean, you know, I want the most, I was looking at the prevail Two this morning online and I'm like, I love it. I'm going to go buy it and I'm going to spend less money than my wife, well, more money than my wife thinks I'm going to be spending, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> but you know, it's, uh, you know, but I'm buying style and I'm buying ventilation and weight and you know, the half a watt that I'll save when I'm off the back by myself. So. Awesome. That's, that's really interesting that I always thought that, yeah, helmets are designed to help prevent concussions and that that technology is still just in its infancy to add into a helmet. I bet most people didn't realize that. So there's this newer technology called MIPS, M-I-P-S. Mm-hmm. And so that is a kind of shell on top of a shell with a helmet. So the outer shell, as you hit, is supposed to kind of rotate on the inner shell and it's supposed to reduce some of the rotational forces. I think the concept of it to me is really good. I haven't seen any data to say it works or it doesn't work, but those things are out there. Again, it's one of those things I don't think it would hurt in any way, but I'm not convinced yet that it's going to help. So if you see that out there, it's usually like a little yellow circle stamped somewhere on the box or on the helmet that says Mm -hmm. nips. Okay. Now I want to move on to other sports. I can't remember the name of that movie that I saw with Will Smith where he played this doctor. I know you're probably laughing, but... So CTE was the thing that came out of that. And then recently I was in the airport and I'm one of those people that still like reading paper books and magazines. So I bought the walrus, which is this Canadian magazine. And there was a humongous article about CTE and just all the implications of it and how the hockey and, you know, NHL, NFL, how they're dealing with that. So what, what has been your experience in that arena? Yeah. So CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It was the first modern case of CTE was discovered by Bennett Amalu, who was played by Will Smith in the movie Concussion. And he was a pathologist in Pittsburgh. I think the the publication was in the mid to early 2000s, so like 2005, 2006, somewhere in that, that area. The CTE as a condition or as a disease actually dates back to the 40s. It was identified first in the, in the 1940s. But Dr. Amalu was the first to identify it in a professional athlete. So Mike Webster was a former American football player who identified it after he passed away. What we think, uh, and so the, the, the thought on it has, quite a, has changed quite a bit. So what we initially thought was it was repeated concussions that led to this kind of scarring of the, of the brain tissue. You'll hear um, tau or phosphorylated tau. Uh, basically, these tau proteins kind of lay down inside of the brain, almost like scar tissue. And we thought that that was related to concussion. There's really some newer work, uh, really within the last month or so, that might suggest it's not so much concussion, but maybe it's just head impacts without concussion or a combination of the two. So this gets important really for people that participate in football or hockey or lacrosse, where there are a lot of head impacts, but no concussion, where this kind of repeated, this repeated exposure and you get like microscopic deposition of tau and it just builds up over time. Cycling is a little bit different because if we crash, you know, maybe we have a couple concussions across our career and these are kind of single instances. And if you manage them really well, what, any given concussion, we don't think there's any real long-term deficits, you know, two, three, there's probably no real long-term deficits that you need to worry about. But you can imagine a football player at the high school level, we've done work on this, where they'll have six to 700 head impacts without concussion in a given season. Wow. Right. And so, so you can imagine you play three or four years of high school football, then you go on to play maybe three or four years of college football. And then if you make it to the professional level, you know, it's a few more years on top of it. So they have a lot of head impact exposure. And so all this kind of micro deposition of towel, kind of what we think is it builds up over time. The thing I would say is what you see, particularly in the U.S. media, I don't know so much about the Canadian media, is you'll see these headlines, 99% of former professional football players have CTE. Those studies are extremely biased. So really what they get are they get brain donations from people that had uh, cognitive, emotional, 
and physical problems kind of towards the end stage of life. And so typically what happens is the, those individuals or their family members want to know kind of like what happened. Like he played professional football and then he declined rapidly at the end. Like what happened? So the brain gets donated so the family can have some understanding. The person that lives until 80, 85 years old and then passes away in their sleep, you know, they lived a normal life and the family is typically happy with that and, you know, they go on. So I 100% confident that 99% of the people that play football are not going to have CTE. That being said, I do think there is a percentage of the population that participate in that sport that, that will. What that number is, I don't know. Nobody has done the study to say if you participate in high school football only, this is the percentage of people that will have it. Or if you participate in high school and college, this is a percentage. Or if you, even if you participate in, book, in professional football, um, this is a percentage. These are all just kind of, we hear about case studies. One person, one person, one person. I can find one person that has anything. So it's it, just a very, it's important research. It's really the groundwork, but it's not definitive by any stretch. Okay, so like it's not as big of a deal as everybody is blowing it up to be. And if someone's kid wants to play football or hockey or whatever, they don't have to be extremely worried about it. Yeah, I think it's something for the parents and the kid to have a conversation about. So I have friends, a great one of my mentors. He had three boys. All of them played football, uh, high school football. I have another friend that his his son wants to play and they're fine with it. My brother, his son wants to play and they're like, nope. And this is because he's the kid is probably five foot six. And if he weighs 100 pounds, he's lucky. So they're not so much worried about brain injury, but they're worried about orthopedic injury and him just getting hurt in general. Mm-hmm. So it's it's case by case. It's the kid's personality. It's, you know, it, it's kind of what fits available, what's available for other outlets for the kid. One of the arguments I make um, in the United States, we have this conversation, you know, should we ban football? And I argue against it. I think it should be allowed because if you're in, I live outside of Detroit, if you're in inner city Detroit, you're in inner city Chicago, you're in Los Angeles, you know, if you're not playing football, what are you going to do? Right. It, there's, there's not a golf course that you're going to go to. Right. You're not going to play tennis. You know, what do you tell the kid that is six foot two and weighs 250 pounds? Like if there's not football. What what's your outlet for sport? Cross country is not really an option for that kid. Right. They're just too big. Even bike riding is going to be tough at that size. So, you know, I think it is an outlet for people. I'd rather see people exercise than not. I think what has to happen is we need to change sport or modify rules to make it safer and try to reduce some of this impact exposure. I'm not sure if this is an appropriate question to ask, but has the NFL tried to influence researchers or research that comes out about CTE and the recommendations to play sport? I think, yes, they have in the past. So there was a concussion or TBI research group in the 90s. I don't remember exactly kind of the time frame of it, but let's say late 90s to early 2000s. And there were a series of papers that were published from that group that are not good. I'll just go with that. That group was disbanded. They, the NFL reformed the TBI group. I think that the people, I don't know all the members that are on it now, but I know the people at the initial reforming um, were all world-class researchers and really just wanted to answer the question. Mm-hmm. And so I do think there was a period when the NFL had some issues, but I think they've been addressed. And I think of all the major professional leagues, I think they have been on the forefront in the last five-ish years. They've been on the forefront of trying to answer the question. They've donated millions of dollars to research to at least try to move it forward. And I'm not trying to, I will slam nobody. I'll name no names, but a lot, a lot of other professional leagues have done nothing. They haven't put any money forward or donated money for research when they could. They certainly have, they they don't have as deep of pockets, but they have pockets and they can dip into them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think that we got, we had a really good conversation and a a really good uh, bird's eye view of concussions and especially related to cycling is there anything in particular that we didn't cover that you'd like to add for people, uh, maybe about how to take it more seriously? I don't know about taking it more seriously, but I think the one thing I, I want to stress is you know, you're better off going all out and exercising and doing something. Every sport is going to carry a risk of some sort. Cycling, you know, you can crash or whether it's soccer or, or anything that's all going to carry some sort of risk to it. But you're better off exercising for physical health and cognitive health. There's there's cognitive benefits to exercise. So just kind of being aware of risk and trying to minimize that risk is really what you should be aiming for. Cool. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And yeah, I think that there's a lot of really good information and I'm excited to put some of those resources you mentioned in the show notes. Happy to do it. We'll get in touch later on. All right. And uh, if people want to contact you actually about this, what's a good way for them to contact you? 
Email is probably best. You can look me up on the University of Michigan website. I'm the only Brolio here, and uh, my email's on there, and just fire away. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Pretty interesting stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I'm excited that Dr. Brolio had some resources for us that I'll put in the show notes because a lot of times when we get hurt, we don't know where to turn. And it's really awesome now to have some resources and to know what to do whenever you've hit your head. If you're interested in making some healthy changes to your diet, you're more than welcome to join our free Facebook group called the Plant Powered Tribe. You don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to eat vegetables all the time but it's just a community page where we can all post and where we can share about our healthy habits and the positive things happening in our life i find that having that group and being a part of something where other people have the same values as me just helps keep me motivated especially on those days when i just want to eat chocolate and drink beer so you can type in plat power tribe on facebook or you can just look in the show notes and there's a link there I'm always open to your feedback on how to make this show better. So please don't be shy. I won't be offended. Send me a message through my website and tell me what you think I could be doing better because improvement is something that I really believe in and you guys are the ones listening. So I really want to do what's right for you. Feel free to sign up for my free newsletter on my website. There's a little pop-up that comes up when you go to sonyalooney.com. It's a free newsletter that I send out one to two times a month, so no spam. It's not gonna overload your inbox, but it just has a bunch of different things that I think are interesting. It'll have new YouTube videos or products or podcasts as well if you happen to have missed them. And it's a great way for us to keep in touch because let's face it, social media doesn't show us the posts that we wanna see all the time. So I just want another way to keep in touch with you guys. All right, that's it for the week. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to my producer, Roma, for always doing such a great job with the audio. I'm not the one spending hours making this show sound good. He is, so big props to him. Wishing you guys all the best success in your training and adventures, and we'll see you back here next week.